Let's open our Bibles to the book of Amos. Tonight we'll do a little bit of an introduction of this uh, prophet named Amos. Time period as we get into this is about 760 to 753 B.C., telling us that um, he is a prophet to the northern kingdom that has not yet fallen. In about 50 years, the people that Amos is speaking to are going to be judged. They will have crossed that line, and judgment will come, but it's about 50 years down the road that that's going to happen. He reigns during the same time of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam, remember, was the first one after Solomon that went to the north. And he established uh, the two golden calves so that they wouldn't go back down to to two southern tribes to worship. So it's just for a little bit of a background. There, during this time, the king is Jeroboam, but it's Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam I. Um, in the southern tribe of Judah, Uzziah is king. He would, would have been a contemporary, meaning he lived during the same time as Jonah and Hosea. Both prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Micah and Isaiah were the prophets that uh, ministered to the southern kingdoms of Judah. As far as the culture and how they were living, well, it was very, very prosperous. Business was booming. Everything was going well. And uh, it was Amos's job to warn them about what was going to happen in 50 years, very similar to what Jeremiah was doing, uh, warning the southern tribes that they were going to go into captivity about, and they were going to stay there for, for 70 years. Uh, his message was delivered in Bethel, which would have been the, um, the capital of the northern kingdom at this time. Bethel, of course, is a very famous place. Jacob's Ladder is where the um, a covenant was made. It uh, probably the best way to set the stage for getting into Amos is having you turn it to chapter seven, and um, because he's in the capital city, he comes from a place called Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is 13 miles south of Jerusalem. Well, seven miles south of Jerusalem, you have Bethlehem. So it's just a little bit farther down the road, and you're running into um, where Amos came from. He was a shepherd, and um, he also had a side job taking care of some of the citrus trees in the area, and that's introduced. But if you're in chapter 7... This will help lay a a foundation for um, this book. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Uh, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel will surely be led away captive from their own land. Um, and then Amaziah said to Amos, go you seer, and he says basically get out of here. We don't want to hear what you have to say. 
You better flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and do your prophesying there, but don't do it here. Don't tell us that our king is going to die and that we're going to be taken into captivity. Never again prophesy at Bethel for the king's, uh, in the king's sanctuary and in the royal residence. Uh, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He didn't want the job. He was simply being obedient to what the Lord told him to do. But where he goes is the epicenter of the wealth and the prosperity. Everything's going good. And um, they simply did not want to hear his message. Basically, they probably had the first world council of church meetings for the Northern Ted tribes. And uh, the message was, away with Amos, away with Amos. Get rid of this guy. We don't want to hear what he has to say. And he was saying it during a time when everything was cool, calm, and collective, and going fine. And they did not want to hear his message. So it's also this time where uh, judgment is going to come. And so he's prophesying, trying to warn them to get back to the Lord. But before he gets into talking to um, the ten tribes in the north, what we have, if you go back to chapter 1, we have the judgment of the surrounding nations. And I'm going to put a a map up on the screen right now that will show you, as we look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to be dealing with um, uh, the judgment of uh, Damascus, the judgment of Gaza, the judgment of Tyre, the judgment of Eden, Ammon, Moab. Then in the second, first part of uh, chapter 2, we go to Israel, but starting in the south. And then the rest of our study tonight, we'll see how far we get, is going to be talking about why he came to Bethel. Because he was sent as a prophet to speak to the ten northern tribes. And we sort of have Amos chapter 1 laid out for you there, sort of as a a help. So here's this um, shepherd, much like David, being called. Um, Again, the Lord chooses uh, the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. He's just a shepherd, just like David. David was just a shepherd tending the sheep. But uh, he had a heart after the Lord. So God spoke to him. And he says, you're my man. And I'm going to send you to the capital, which was Bethel. And um, chapter 7 sums it up really good. Get out of here. We don't like your message. Go back home. So as we look at chapter 1, this first verse in chapter 1, the words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, this would be Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, this earthquake is also mentioned by Zechariah nearly 200 years later. 
And according to the historian Josephus, it took place during the reign of Uzziah. So it was um, a landmark, sort of a timeline in Israel's history. It had to be quite quite the earthquake, as it's commented on there. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds moan, and the top of Carmel withers. Now, Carmel would have been Mount Carmel in the north. So he is now going to address, before he gets to um, the northern tribes, he's going to go through these surrounding nations that we have here. Then he's going to talk directly to Judah. And when they, I can imagine, they kind of see where Amos is heading because he's going around the list of pronouncing judgment. And they had to get a little nervous because after he's done with Judah, they probably have got it figured out by now that they're next on the list. So let's start with, and I'm going to take a little time and talk about these. I actually wanted to try to get through four or five chapters, but I don't think that's going to happen because I want to talk um, about, do a little sidetracks on, on um, well, for example, this first one right here is uh, Syria, uh, Damascus, uh, verses 3 through 5. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palace of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the, the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of uh, Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. Now, when he says Gilead, let me just explain a little bit about what Gilead is. Gilead would be on the, if you're looking at the map here, on the east bank of the Jordan River. It was the land which came up as far as the Sea of Galilee. This is where the tribes of of Reuben and Gad were. Remember when we talked about the land of the Gadarenes when Jesus cast the demon out? They were in the lands of the Gadarenes and half the tribe of Manasseh. What were they doing? Well, they were raising pigs. (laughs) And that was not kosher, to say the least. So what happened is is, uh, Syria, um, they weren't in the promised land. Everything west of of, um, the, the Golan there would have been the promised land. They're not in the promised land, and on top of it, they were raising pigs. Syria is located right to the north and comes and came down against them. Now, even today, um, there's this constant, we're hearing about it almost on a daily basis, um, fighting that's going on between Syria and the Golan. And... Um, I, I, I say it almost on a weekly basis that um, Hezbollah is in the area of, of the Golan. Uh, just flip over to Isaiah chapter 17. Some of you are very familiar with this prophecy. Some of you are going to hear it for the first time. But even back 
before the ten northern tribes fell, um, the children of Israel, Gad and, and uh, Manasseh, and they were duking it out with Syria and Damascus, and that's what's going on today. How many? How many? Over twenty-five, a hundred years ago. And um, concerning Damascus, and here's one of my little rabbit trails, verse 1, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, it will become a ruinous heap. Now, this is a prophecy. The claim to fame for Damascus is it's the oldest continually inhabited city in the entire world. And yet the Bible says it's never going to be inhabited again. This prophecy has never been fulfilled. So if we're going to use common sense, which we should, we should use our brains and say, you know, first of all, has this ever happened before? Yeah, it's been going on for a long, long time in the Middle East, Syria and Israel, right on the Golan Heights. And when we, when we go there, we'll go up on a lookout point, and um, on a clear day, you can actually see Damascus from the Israeli side. That's where we have all our antennas and spy equipment to keep an eye on on what they're doing. But all it's going to take, gang, is is, um, one of of these radicals that we see homegrown in our own country today thinking the sure way to get to heaven is by killing and being involved in jihad and um, killing Jews. And you're guaranteed one-way ticket into heaven. And uh, one of them is going to, or it might be planned out, and it's not hard to imagine them lobbing a missile over the Golan, and it could be um, gas, it could be anything. But know this, if that happens, uh, Israel has a saying, never again. If Israel is attacked, bye-bye Damascus. It's really that simple. But I've mentioned to you to do this before. I did it myself. If you go online and just Google drone and Damascus, just see what it looks like today. It's almost completely in ruin today. I mean, the guy, Assad, has already taken out 230,000 of his own people. And, um, you know, and yet... You know, everybody's caught up in everyday life. Certainly, we can go back now. Uh, Certainly during this time, they did not want to hear the message because times were good. And when times are good, you don't want to hear that judgment is imminent. And so the first uh, judgment we have here is against Syria. And uh, that continues on to this day. He's saying he's going to judge uh, them for their cruelty and their brutality. Well, let me ask you this. Is there anything more cruel than your own president gassing your own people? No. It's crazy. And uh, so, so it was then, so it, is to, so it is today. All right, well, that's our first one. As you look at verse 6 through 8, we look at Gaza. So let's read it, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about current events in what we call the Gaza Strip today. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. 
because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants from Assad and one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron. These would have been the uh, uh, Philistine cities. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Um, When he talks here about Syria and Damascus, I I mean, um, and the Gaza, um, when we refer to the Gaza Strip today, well, I don't know how many years ago it was, but in the name of peace, we gave them what is commonly talked about in, on, in the news, land for peace. Well, Israel keeps giving land, but we don't get no peace. We turned over the Gaza Strip to the Arabs, who once they got it, uh, immediately invited Hezbollah in and began digging tunnels. Um, the only time we had to cancel a trip to Israel is um, they had just discovered one of these tunnels, and on a daily basis they were shooting rockets from the Gaza Strip into the towns that they could reach with their missiles. They weren't good shots, and they didn't have any accuracy, but nonetheless, it had to be stopped. And so there was boots on the ground ready to go into Gaza, and um, because one of their rockets actually went over Ben Gurion Airport, and that's when we ca- we didn't cancel. Israel canceled. They said if they're shooting at our airport, then we have to shut things down. And uh, all my years in going to Israel, it's the only time that um, it's ever been attacked. Now, for those of you who are going, let me tell you this: no tourist has ever been killed, <laughs> nor no no tour bus has ever been attacked in all these years. There are record numbers in Israel today. So you understand that, but I also understand your family. When they, they're not saved and they don't understand the security of Israel, um, I, they try to talk you out of going. And I usually tell them, don't worry about Israel. Worry about living in the south side of Chicago. That's where you should be worried about living. Or Milwaukee. That's where, that's where it's dangerous to live. But here, let's set the record straight. The Gaza Strip was once the land of the Philistines. And thus where the name uh, Palestine comes from. We need to set the record straight here so that when you talk to your friends and they talk about a two-state solution for, for the poor Palestinians, let me just tell you there is no such thing as a Palestinian. There never has been. And um, the plain truth is um, there's no such place as Palestine. The first time the name was uh, used was in 70 AD when the Roman laid siege to Jerusalem. They burned the temple, declaring the land called Israel would cease to exist. And from that time forward, the area would be known as Palestine. The name is derived from the Philistines. Now when you go 
down there, they have the five Palestinians. We actually stayed on a kibbutz there uh, years ago. It was a dairy kibbutz. But I think it was in Ekron, if I remember. It, it's meant to be an insult to Israel because uh, the Philistines were the main enemy of, of Israel. David's enemies were the Philistines. And um, uh, Palestine has never existed as a country, but as Israel has been a succession of usurpers for 18 centuries, back and forth with different countries, up until May 14, 1948. There is no Palestinian language, culture, governing body, or even a Palestinian people. Palestinians are Arabs, and they're not satisfied that they have 5.3 million square miles that they already claim throughout the Middle East. They also want Israel's meager 10,000 square miles. Matter of fact, modern Israel drained its swamps and became one of the largest fruit producers in the world. No one seemed even remotely interested in this place, which was 60% desert. There is no Islamic holy site in Jerusalem. The Quran never even mentions Jerusalem, nor is there any historical evidence that Muhammad even visited there. So the next time you hear, um, sometimes you'll even um, see maps and it'll say Palestine in there. Nothing annoys me more than that. It was meant to be an insult, and um, uh, yet... Most of the media, if not most of the world, is completely naive to the fact um, that there just isn't. isn't. All right, let's go on to Tyre. So if I would look at Gaza, I would say he's speaking to them then. But again, they just, what was making news last week is they discovered uh, another tunnel uh, where it began in a, in, a, in a schoolroom, hiding behind little kids. And um, so we find it being an enemy that was judged then. Well, I believe God is going to judge Gaza again. All right, that brings us to Tyre. Now, when we get to Tyre, let's read verses 9 through 10. It's only two verses. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn away its punishment. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherhood covenant. In other words, they had broken a covenant they had with Israel, and because of that, God is going to judge them. Now, in verse ten, where it talks about "I'll send a fire," um, first it was Assyria, which would have been the world-dominating power at this time, against Tyre. Now, Tyre's on the coast, and um, uh, the Assyrians were not able to take the city. Uh, there has been some questions whether the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar took the city or not. However, uh, it is conceded that Nebuchadnezzar forced the people in Tyre um, 
it was called the, the city of the Phoenicians. What they did is they realized that they were, they were known for their seafaring ways. So they moved the whole city of Tyre off the mainland, built a causeway to an island that was a half a mile away, and they moved the entire city out there. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the old city that was on the mainland. Okay, fast forward 250 years later, after, remember, go through what we learned in Daniel. You have Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian, um, then the Roman. So here, after Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persian, then came the Grecian, which is Alexander the Great. So now we're going to fast forward from Tyre. They've moved their city, and they're living on an island. 250 years later, Alexander the Great comes along, and he saw that they were very prosperous, very wealthy city, out on this island. And he built a causeway out to it. In doing so, he fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy, which God said that he would absolutely scrape the ground of old Tyre and throw it into the sea. All right, I want to, I want to do a, another little rabbit trail here, and I want to take you to Ezekiel chapter 26. Ezekiel 26, the first uh, five verses. Now, this is a prophecy. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. They moved their city to the island. Verse 1 of uh, Ezekiel 26, it came to pass in the 11th year and the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, now this is Ezekiel, son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. In other words, she broke her covenant. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled, she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations, all right, who was is, who is the first ones? The Assyrians, who was the second one? The Babylonians, and now we have Alexander the Great to come up against you as the sea causes the waves to come up. And they, plural, shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It will be a place for a spreading in nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become a plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So we have, now let's make our way back to Tyre. Because they did not remember their covenant of brotherhood. You know, this, we have the cedars of Lebanon in that area. There was trade that existed with, with, between, these, between Israel. And um, now God is going to um, judge the surrounding nations. And they, they fell to Nebuchadnezzar. All right, now, verse 11 and 12, we're going to go to Edom. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword, cast off all pity, 
His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palace of Basra. Now, in Edom, the judgment against Edom is because of their, basically, the, a, a revengeful spirit. Back of, of revenge ordinarily finds jealousy. And the Edomites were jealous of their brothers. You see, Edom came from Esau and Israel from Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and they were going at it um, right, right from the get-go. And it talks about here Basra, which is the rock city of Petra, and basically it's a tourist site. Uh, it would have been the capital of Eden at this time, which is located, and this and then it was completely destroyed. Petra is basically a rock city, but it was more than a rock city at one time. Uh, the palaces of Basra have been destroyed and have been, they now disappear, but it's a very, very popular tourist site. This prophecy against Edom has been literally fulfilled. Judgment came upon them because they're a revengeful spirit, because they were jealous of their brother Israel. And... Um, I wish we could do a side trip to Petra. It's an unbelievable fortress where the rabbit trail would lead here. Well, let's go there. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, connect some dots. It reappears. Let's go to um, chapter 12. We read um, in verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman that would be Israel who gave birth to the male child that would be Jesus. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now this place is Petra. And I'll prove that in just a second. Uh, so the serpent spewed water, probably an army, out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that she might be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The dragon, which is Lucifer, was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, now this is um, Edom. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 16. This will be repetitive for some of you, but it'll be first time for others. So it's good to review. It's how we learn. Here in Isaiah, verse 1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness. Now, Selah, Petra, and Basra are all the same place. And um, Edom and, let's see, Petra, and Edom, uh, for it shall be as a wandering bird throughout all the, thrown out of its nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the, the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadows like the night in the midst of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my 
outcasts dwell with you, O Moab and Jordan. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. That would be the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. So as we read in Amos, which we can go back to now, and we read of Edom, we find um, um, it tied in with with um, Ammon. So let's go now 13 through 15, and we'll make it through our first chapter. This is how I knew it. we weren't going to make all five chapters tonight. <laughs> okay. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishments because they ripped open the woman with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, immense the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together. Now, as we look at um, uh, Amman, Amman was located on the east bank of the Jordan, and they joined with uh, the Syrians in fighting against the two and a half tribes of Israel, which is in the line of Gideon. They did it, and they enlarged their borders. Now, Ammon, on the map today, would be part of Jordan. But uh, as my sidetrack here, I want you to turn, and um, it's a question that you're going to get asked. I get asked all the time. But it gives me an opportunity. So let's turn to Romans chapter 2. And let me address the question. And that is, um, what is God going to do with people who have never heard the gospel? Heathen nations that didn't have the Mosaic law, they didn't know any better. And we have the answer for that. In other words, what's, what's God going to do with people who have never heard the gospel? In Romans, if you're in Romans chapter 2, I'm not, I better get there quick. Um, picking it up in verse 11, it says, For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish. Now, who had the law? Well, Israel had the law. They had the commandments. But what, what about those who didn't have the law? Well, here it says they will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For... And not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Uh, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and here we're, we're talking about Ammon, and the rest of these Gentile nations around, they didn't have the law, um, who do not have the law, by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. And you say, well, how are they a law to themselves? Verse 15 and 16. Who show the works of the law written in their hearts. In other words, their conscience. Whether you're saved or not saved, if um, 
you know when you've done something wrong. I mean, if you go in a store and you rip something off, what does your conscience tell you? I just stole something. And your conscience tells you that's not right. And that you could actually get busted and go to jail for doing it. The conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their own thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. In other words, I just did the right thing or I just did the wrong thing. So you have these surrounding nations. How is God judging them? By, you know, being spiteful and revengeful, being jealous and breaking covenants, which was wrong. And so God says, I'm going to judge you. And that, in verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Go back to chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. Again, what's the question? What is God going to do with people who have never heard the gospel? Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is one of my favorite verses. Here is telling us that God's wrath is being reserved. He's being patient. Matter of fact, um, uh, he didn't uh, attack uh, this land until the, their iniquity was full. In other words, he was being patient with Ammon and Moab. But when their iniquity was full, then he allowed the children of Israel to come into the land. So it's not that they don't know that there's a God. No, they know. They just don't want to be ruled by him. They suppress what they know to be true. Well, how do they know it's true? Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. Well, how has God spoken to somebody who doesn't know him? And how do they know it's truth? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to become wise, they become fools." The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it seems to me the more person is proud of his intellect, the more they suppress that truth because they're proud of their intellect. They like the title. They like what goes along with it. I like to call them educated fools. (laughs) They're very educated, but they're suppressing it. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like uh, corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creepy things. Mary came in my office today and she said, I want to show you a picture of a a caterpillar. And she, she was outside, it was on a branch, so she brought it in the house and made a little thing for it to spit its cocoon. And um, so right now it's in process. Now, and once this cocoon is developed, and it's only going to take three or four billion years for this to happen, will come out something that could just eat and crawl on the ground into this unbelievably beautiful creature. She knows what kind of, but I can't remember what it was, but she showed me a picture of before and after. You know how long that's going to take for this to happen? Two weeks. 
from something that goes from now now if you have common sense and you get into the area of talking about evolution taking millions and billions and billions of years and they actually called the process a metamorphosis and that's a scientific term that's the same word that's used for us in the rapture when and when Paul explains it the word there is metamorphosis we get metamorphosized what are we we're earth dwellers but all of a sudden in a twinkling of an eye not in billions of years we're given a brand new body that's going to be eternal uh, what really trips my trigger are the monarchs all right, I hope I can find my way back. I've got to tell another butterfly story. I was burning weeds at the bottom of my hill, and I swear this monarch was watching me. He wouldn't go away. And I, I, had, a, I was, had one of these torch blowers getting rid of the weeds, and, and he's just watching me. And I'd, I'd look at him, and he'd look at me, and he'd fly around to the other side of me. And then he'd stop, and he'd look at me, and I'm looking at him, and I go back to burning my... And when I was all done burning, I turned the thing off and I said, okay, now, are you on your way to Mexico or are you going to come and stay here? Because what he did is he came down and he landed right in front of me and just looked at me. And I don't know what he was trying to say, but I know he was on his way to Mexico. Do you know that a monarch from Appleton, Wisconsin, and a monarch from Seattle, Washington, are both going to end up in a mountain range just outside of Mexico City? where there's millions and millions of these monarchs. Here's my simple question. How do they know how to get there? Who gave them the intelligence? And you, you're going to tell me that that evolved inside of a creature this, this, this big, that went from being a worm to this unbelievable, beautiful creature? No wonder Paul uses that terminology for the rapture of the church. And what it does for me, it gives me confidence that I am going to have a new body. I'm getting tired of this one because this one's getting tired on me. <laughs> and uh, I want to be metamorphosized in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Lord, bring it on. The more you know about the Word of God and the more you study little rabbit trails like this, the fact of the matter is people that are um, educated fools, go, go to John chapter 3. It, it simply tells us the reason people won't give their life to Jesus. We're all familiar with John 3. In John 3, 16. Um, but if you look down in verse 19, it says, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's why they're suppressing the truth. They like to sin. There is pleasure in sin. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So a lot of people come to Christ when they're at rock bottom. That's when they look up. Uh, But until then, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But then what? Then you die in it, and you're going to have to give an account for it. And what we're learning through Amos is God will judge sin. He said you can't go in and take the land until the iniquity of the Ammonites is full. In other words, it's like a measuring glass. Bad, 
worse, worse yet, judgment. And it comes to the point where the Lord says, okay, if this is what you really want, so be it. You hear the truth, but you don't want to hear the truth because now you can't do the sin that your old life wanted to do. Good place for an amen. That's why people don't come around. They did not, and let's go back to Amos, see if we can find our way back there. They did not want to hear Amos's message. When we get to chapter 7, he's doing this in the capital city of Bethel in the palace of the king. And he basically said, get out of here. We don't want to hear words of judgment and repentance. And guess what? The church doesn't want to hear it today either. The Bible says that in the times that we're living in, they will actually look for teachers who will tell them things they want to hear instead of things we need to hear. Another good place for an amen. It's just not being preached. This is called laboring in the word. You know that the Bible says we're to labor in the word? Well, what does that mean? It means that when you get through with Joel, you go right into Amos, and you tear it apart. You dig into it. You make the connections with uh, Amman and Edom being Jordan. Amman, we flew into Amman once. It's the capital of Jordan. It has a history back then, but we have a history what it's going to be in the future. It's going to be where Petra is. And that's where the remnant are going to flee to. So that brings us to chapter 2. Wow, we made it through chapter 1. This is, this is uh, um, getting back to normal after doing seven chapters on a Wednesday night. <laughs> Let's see if we can make it through chapter 2. Chapter 2 is now the judgment of Moab. First three verses. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palace of Keroth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sounds. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all the princes with him, says the Lord. Now you can look up and see where Moab is. Um, The punishment here of Moab, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. The judgment against Moab is for an awful spirit of revenge. The Moabites had gained a victory in a battle over their enemies, the Edomites, had killed their king, and you think that would have been enough, but they even burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. The Moabites carried their revengeful spirit to the ninth degree, or the nth degree, and God says here that he will judge them for that. Revenge. What does the Bible say about our revenge? Who does it belong to? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that, that's God's job. Uh, where we are to be discerning and judging is when it comes to doctrine. We're to expose false doctrine. Nothing wrong with that. But to carry a, a, a spirit of revenge, the Lord says, I'm going to judge it. Now, the interesting thing, this was brought about the nation... 
uh, was brought to extinction later under the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And you haven't seen a Moabite, nor have you seen an Ammonite, nor have you seen a Philistine. They simply don't exist. All, all these other nations that had names after them, the only one that you find are Israelites. The rest of them have been assimilated into the world system. And the, the biggest miracle in the Bible is after 2,000 years, God took up this scattered ethnic group that are called Jews and miraculously brought them back into the land and made them a nation in one day. That's the Bible prophecy. I will make you a nation in a day. They became a nation in a day. And next year, we'll, they'll be celebrating their 70th anniversary. Now, this little sidetrack here that's entering about Moab is that you have the story of Ruth. Who was Ruth? She was a Moabitess, remember? And Naomi and her husband went because of the famine that was in Bethlehem, and they went to the land of Moab. And her two sons married two gals, and one of them was Ruth. And um, when their two sons die, Ruth goes back to Bethlehem. And you know the story. It's a love story. That she um, marries Boaz. And uh, they have children. And um, first one was Jesse, who was the father of David, who was the king of Israel. And so you have a Gentile marrying a Jew. Another place where you can see the gospel. Here's a Jew who marries a Gentile and becomes a part of the royal line. And that's what we are. The church is, is the bride of Christ and we become part of the royal line. So let's look at Judah in verses 4 through 5. And it's probably as far as we're going to make it tonight. Now, these, uh, what we've done so far is a judgment of the Gentile nations. Now we get into Judah. Now Judah, remember, is the southern, uh, the southern tribes. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord, have not kept his commandments, Uh, Their lies led them astray, lies after which their fathers walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palace of Jerusalem. Do you notice anything different for the reason for judgment from the Gentile nations till we get to Judah? If you notice, the Lord is specific with Damascus, with Gaza, with Tyre, with Edom, with Ammon. He pointed out specific sins that they did. Not so with Judah. Here, it doesn't, the reason for their punishment is that they knew God's word. They were given the commandments of God. And as a result, um, he judges them because They're different from the other nations. They didn't have God's law. They were not judged according to God's law. But they were held accountable to whom much is given, much is required. And um, we have much more responsibility 
as born-again believers because we're supposed to know the word well enough to have it transform us. Jesus said, come and learn of me. I'm lowly and meekly of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. You'll have a peace that the Bible says will pass human understanding. And when you go through tough and difficult times, you can say, well, praise the Lord. I don't know what's going on here, but I walk by faith, not by sight. Besides all that, God says he's going to work everything out to my good, no matter what I'm going through. Now, do you believe that? So you can have peace in the middle of a storm. You know, the Lord got upset with the disciples. You know, and this, is, this always intrigued me. You know, here's seasoned seamen, the disciples. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They grew up there, Peter, James, and John. But the storm comes up, and they're freaking out. And the Lord, yeah, he's really freaking out too. He's sound asleep in the bow of the boat. <laughs> they had to wake him up. They said, Lord, Lord, save us. We're, we're perishing. And he gets up and looks around and looks out. Be still. And there was this perfect peace that came over them. And he could have said, boy, guys, it's it's really a good thing you woke me up because you're you're certainly going to go down for sure. What did he say? He reproves them. Was their life at stake? Absolutely. But Jesus says, let's get in the boat on this side and we're going to go over to the other side. Is there anything in the universe that's going to stop that boat from getting from point A to point B? Absolutely nothing. It was a test. You might, and we like to say, you might be in a storm right now. It's a test. How are you responding to it? Uh, Do you know what's going to happen? No. Well, that's good, because now you're going to find out where your faith is at. And you're either going to freak out or peace out. Peace out sounds, is that a make-up word? I think I just made one up. And the Lord knows exactly how much faith you have, but what always intrigued me, and we'll close with this, is that in the middle of difficulties and circumstances, Judah was held to a higher standard. They should have been a witness, worshiping the Lord their God. Instead, they were committing sins that were worse than the people that were before him. And so he's going to judge Judah. By who? Nebuchadnezzar. And... um, I don't know if it was Ezekiel or Jeremiah who said it. It says, Lord, that doesn't seem right. They're worse. I mean, Babylonians, they're, they're worse than we are. But that was God's choice of instrument to judge um, Judah. And they did burn with fire the temple. And uh, they were in captivity for that those 70 years. But again, instead of um, encouraging them and comforting them and putting their arm around them and patting them. It's going to be okay. No, he says, guys, where is your faith? And if, if we don't uh, show that peace in the midst of the storm, then we're no different than anybody else. Good place for today, man. Good place to end the Bible, Sonny. Let's stand. Lord, as we labor in your word, and um, teach it verse by verse and simply. Your word speaks for itself. 
We've learned tonight how you're going to judge people who've never heard about you. And we've learned tonight that you hold your people who know your word to a higher standard. And Lord, we want it to affect us to the point that when we don't know what's going on, and we have to walk by faith and not by sight, that we don't become anxious because your word tells us that we should be anxious for nothing. So Lord, forgive us when we are anxious. And forgive us when we lose our peace when we're in the storm. And help us remember, Lord, that you're working always for those that love you, all things out for good. So in that, we have the certainty of your word and your promise, and your word tells us you cannot lie, that you're working it all out for our good. For this, we're grateful. It brings stability to my heart and to those here tonight and those watching a live stream, that you're a God who's in the boat with us, and we have really nothing to be concerned about except to stay close to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.